Let's jump in. Acts chapter 13. Uh, in the Old Testament, there is a, a few prophecies, in the Minor Testament specifically, in the Minor Prophets particularly, that oftentimes we don't really read. The Minor Prophets are those 12 books right at the end of your Old Testament, and if you have a used Bible, it's probably the pages that look like they're brand new, because we don't oftentimes read those Minor Prophets of the Old Testament. Let me read you a couple of them that stick out to me that I think are very relevant for today. Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. The prophet Amos looks out and he says, there's going to come a day where there's going to be a famine of the word of God. Not of bread, not of water, but literally people will be parched. They'll be spiritually parched. They won't know which way to go. All sorts of brokenness will come. Why? Because there's a famine of the word of God. The prophet Hosea, he says something very similar, but he extends it. Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Hear the word of the Lord, says Hosea, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God. So here's the minor prophet looking at the people of God saying, here's the controversy God has with you. There's no knowledge of God. Then what happens? Therefore, there is swearing. There is lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. Interesting passage. When I teach systematic theology, I, I open up this passage always in our introductory class to teach why it's so important to know our Bibles. This is, this is a prophet looking out at the people of God saying, if you're looking out and you're seeing bloodshed, you're seeing violence, you're seeing murder in your streets, people of God, if that's your situation, it could be that there's no knowledge of God. And the reason those vices are taking place in the world all around you is because of the lack of the knowledge of God, because there's a famine of the word of God. Reflecting on our city this week, prayer warriors gathered this morning, about 20 folks to gather, pray over our city and over the situations in our city. Those of you who have been watching the news or reading the Chicago Tribune have been seeing the violence, quite literally putting into play Hosea chapter 4 of bloodshed following bloodshed, murder, strife, violence. Why? Why is that happening in Chicago? I want to make the case that those things flow out of the same place Hosea said. There's no knowledge of God. Because when there's knowledge of God, when there's love of God, when the word of God is working in people's hearts and then it's flowing through people into the dark and the dirty places of society, then that word of God transforms the heart. See, the heart is the, the epicenter of the violence. The reason that exists is because this is wrong. There's a brokenness in the human heart. But once this gets healed by the word of God, by Jesus changing somebody, then those issues begin to take care of themselves. Every follower of Christ in this room knows that to be true on a smaller scale. If you've been walking with Jesus for some time, you know that when Jesus got a hold of you, things began to change. Not perfect, but there was progress. These passages are important for us, and we come to our theme for the day, which is the Word of God and how the Word of God needs to be central in our life. And I want to ask us as a church, as a people of God, if we really understand the depth of how important the knowledge of God is as the centerpiece of what we identify as as a people of God. 
If we're gonna do this thing well, if we're gonna be a church family, if we're gonna gather together, if we're gonna send missionaries out, if we're gonna be a church living in the city, how often do we preach sermons about the city and we say, look, we're for the city. And I challenge you and I say, stay in the city. Don't move. Don't move. Stay here for the sake of what God's doing because right now there's a, a, a lack of the knowledge of God and if you're a Christian, we need you because a handful of us can't be in every place. We need a whole body to infiltrate this city. And I call you to stay in it. If we're gonna be that church, we have to elevate the word of God to the place that the prophets did. And we have to know it and believe it and live it and live as ambassadors of Christ building our life on the word of God. Now when the word of God goes out, the word of God goes out in many forms. What I'm doing right now is quite a formal way that the word of God goes forward. It's a formal way that God has used powerfully throughout the last 2,000 years of church history and I would argue even further than that in Israel's history the public preaching of God's word. This is an important piece of what Christians do. This is not a secondary piece. This is critical for the health of the church. But the proclamation of God's word is far more than the preacher on a Sunday morning. When you live your life in small groups, in community, with neighbors, with your coworkers, when you are a public advocate for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're living as a proclaimer of God's word, in some way as a preacher of God's word in all of those places. And so whenever we think about the role of the word of God and how we preach and why we preach that way, that's not just informing what I do on a Sunday. That's informing how we as a people of God live publicly as public witnesses for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, the preaching of God's word has, in our modern day, degenerated into one of two things in general. Either it's become entertainment and chalked up next to a TED talk or a helpful lecture on YouTube, or on the other hand, it's become a psychological uh, examination of the human heart that's largely devoid of the actual words of God. And these are the mistakes that most modern churches make. And the reason most modern churches make these mistakes is because they're afraid that if they simply preach the word of God for what the word of God is, that there's no power in that. And the, the foolishness of that entire mistake is that there's no power in the other way. It's when we preach the word, and I'm not just saying me, I'm saying you, when you live your life on the word and in every aspect of your life are proclaimers of, the God, of God, that's where the power is. Today we get to this passage in Acts chapter 13. It's another sermon. We're coming to another sermon. I'm preaching a sermon on a sermon, which is a fun place for me to be. Uh, what we really should do is just read the sermon, call it a day, and go home. But I'm gonna try to explain and unpack this sermon that Paul gave. And we're gonna look at three elements. One, the context of the sermon. Two, the content of the sermon. And three, the consequences of the sermon. And the general theme I want us to be looking at is the role the word of God plays as we proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And I wanna think through how does that play out for each of us individually. So let's jump right in. Acts chapter 13, starting in verses 13. We'll go through 15 to begin. Here's the, con uh, the context. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now I'm not gonna unpack that right now because in about three weeks, that little phrase, John left them and returned to Jerusalem, will come back up. That moment causes a huge rift in John, who's also known as John Mark, and Paul that was almost irreconcilable. John left them. 
But they went on from Perga and came back to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, began to preach. And then he began into a sermon. So pause there. There's the content, context. Context is important. When you're going to be a proclaimer of God's word, when you're going to speak as an ambassador for Christ, you have to know who you're around. You have to know who you're speaking to and how the words that you're speaking are going to be hitting their particular heart. This is one of the reasons it's so important to prioritize life-on-life ministry. What I mean by life-on-life ministry is that you are in people's lives. You're, You're in the brokenness of their life. You're in the challenges of their life. You're doing life with them up close and personal. So it's not just something from a distance and you're, you're kind of blanketing, but actually you're, you're doing life with people. That's why even from what I'm doing here, preaching, proclaiming the word as a preacher, it's so important that what we say a shepherd should smell like his sheep, right? That means that I do life with you. That way when I'm even here, when I'm proclaiming this, I'm thinking of you, your stories, what's happening in the life of our church. And I'm thinking, how does what I say hit these people in a way that actually generates change and transformation in their heart? What was his context? He was in Antioch of Pisidia. Now, this is not the same city, Antioch, that we studied in Acts chapter 11. Remember Acts chapter 11, that city, Antioch? That was a great moment in the, in the study of Acts. Why? That was the first city where a bunch of things happened. It was the first place the Christians were called Christians. They were the first community to send out missionaries. That was a powerful Christian community. This is a different Antioch. This was a Roman province. It was a military center. And it had a very, very large Jewish population. And we're going to see that context play itself out in the way that he delivers this sermon. There's going to be a lot of Jewish roots in the sermon, meaning he's going to quote a lot of scripture verbatim from the Old Testament. Why would he do that? Well, when he's preaching and he's explaining to a group of people that know their Old Testaments very, very well, he's going to show them right there, he's going to get into their heart and reveal it for them. Now, that doesn't mean that when you're preaching to people who don't know their Bibles, you don't use the Word of God. We always use the Word of God. That'll be the main point I'm making today. But what he's doing is he's contextualizing his message to the people he's preaching to. We see that he went into a synagogue. This was something Paul often did. Now, we're getting into the section of Acts, the book of Acts, the gospel is going forward. It started in Jerusalem, goes to Judea, goes to Samaria, and now it's beginning to go to the ends of the earth, to all these cities, as Paul goes out planting churches in all these cities across the Mediterranean. The next few chapters are just going city to city as Paul preaches. And one of the, the regular habits Paul made is that the first thing he would do in a new city is he'd go to the synagogue. He'd proclaim that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah to the Jews in the city. And then he would go to everybody else in the city and proclaim that he was their Messiah as well, whether or not they were Jewish by by ethnicity. And this was a common thing he did. Now, how would a Jewish synagogue service work? In some ways, it would be a little bit like this. There would have been a reading from the law and then from the prophets. That's two different ways of breaking up the Old Testament. And we see that in chapter 13, in uh, verse, uh, where am I? Chapter 13 Verse 15, after the reading from the law and the prophets, that would have been how the the Sabbath service worked. And then they would have called on the rabbi to come up and give a message from from the reading they just had. Now, why'd they pick Paul? He was a visitor. My people are 
ask this question all the time. One of the ways that could have happened is that maybe in those days, they asked visitors to come up and share. That's not something I would normally do on a Sunday morning, but maybe that was something they did. More than likely, Paul, the way he was dressed, signified that he was a trained rabbi in his day. You remember, Paul himself was a Pharisee. He was trained in the word of God, and it could have been very evident that when Paul was in this synagogue, he was dressed, they looked out and said, okay, this is someone who's had training and has something to teach us. So they tap him on the shoulder. That's the context. So Paul begins to preach this message. Here's what's important for us thinking about context. As you live your life, you you are in all these different relationships with people in your spheres of influence. You have your jobs, you have your neighborhood, you have your neighbors, you have family, you have friends. And your job as a Christian is to be so deeply embedded in their life that, that you, and then you know your word of God so well that you help bring the word of God to bear into the practical, personal places of their life. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. Paul later says, I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. I become all things to all people. I want to ask you if that's actually a part of your heart that you think about on a, on a week-to-week basis. This is important for us as Christians. One of the things that happens to us is we get in a very selfish rhythm of life. And our selfish rhythm of life is I'm living my life. I'm going about my life my way. I do things the way I want to do them because that's who I am. And I'm living in a city and I'll spend my time how I spend my time. But that's actually not the Christian's heart. If you're a follower of Christ, you've been placed in this place for such a time as this, equipped with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and your role is to look into the sovereign providential relationships you have, and you say, how do I become all things to all people that by by grace I might save some? How do I communicate this precious message I have in a way that's going to speak to their heart? The only way that works is if you're in people's lives. That's the context. Now we're going to get into the content of this sermon, and the content's very important. There's a lot of scripture here. Bear with me as I read a longer chunk. This is a whole sermon, so let me read to you Paul's sermon. Acts chapter 13, we're going to go 13 through 41, Uh, 16 through 41. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand. He said, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified, quote, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Let's just pause there in this sermon. 
What Saul is doing so far is he's looking back over all of history and he's reminding the Jewish people that he's preaching to of their history and what God has done in their life. And he's saying, remember when God brought you out of the land of Israel? Remember when God established you as a people in the land? And remember when God gave you that King David? It all pointed towards Jesus Christ. And that's how he starts this. He goes back over their own journey. This is so important. He's contextualizing. He's going through their own journey. He says, your identity, every marker in that journey of yours as a people was to point you towards Jesus. All right, pause. Contextualizing how you live this out. I want you to think about the people in your life. When you are ministering to somebody and you're looking over their life, and they're coming to you, and they're bringing their problems to you, and their heartaches, and their griefs, and their struggles, and you're looking over their life, what Paul just did is what faithful Christians do in relationships. You come along somebody who's struggling, and you look back over their life with them, and you say, it was all always pointing to Jesus. I know you don't see it yet, but you remember that? You know how you shared that happened to you when you were 11 years old? God was preparing you. He, he, he brought you, do you see how he brought you through that? Look at this. You remember that? That was the Lord's providential hand. Because look, they don't see it with clarity. But as a Christian, you do. There is no moment untouched by the providential hand of God. He's over it all. And as a faithful Christian, thinking of their context, retelling the story through a, a truthful lens, you look at people's stories. You enter into it with them because they've given you permission, because you're doing life with them, and you say this, you didn't see it. He was always bringing you to the Lord. Let me explain this to you. Now look what he does next. He says, it was always pointing to Jesus, now he says, now let me explain Jesus to you. You get real clear. Pick it up where he left off, verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, speaking of Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And they found him, they found, they found in him no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now pause here before I finish the sermon. What's he doing? He, he walked with them. He said it always pointed to Jesus. And then he gets to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You cannot share Jesus unless you explain the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Fundamental mistake. I'm going to unpack this in more detail later. But he's, he's explaining. Jesus was not just a good teacher. He was not just another rabbi. You want healing? You want to know what all that was pointing towards? It was pointing to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He walks them through the events themselves. Here's what actually happened in real space and real time. He died. He was crucified in fulfillment of prophecy. He was resurrected by God on the third day. He appeared to many, and those men are now bearing witness and testimony of Jesus all throughout the Mediterranean. 
and it was all in fulfillment of prophecy, and then he gives them the meaning of it all. Verse 34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken about this in the Old Testament this way. In that prophecy where it says, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David, Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. He's saying, look, your, your psalms, the Old Testament you read, it always spoke of this. For David, after he had served the purposes of God and his own generation fell asleep, that means he died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption, Jesus. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What's he doing? He explained the death, he, he said he died and resurrected, but then he explained the meaning of the death and the resurrection. It's not just the events happened, it's what do those events mean? So I'm proclaiming to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Oh, he's saying you're in slavery and you don't realize it, and there's freedom in the name of Jesus. Think about the person you're ministering to. They're in grief. They're in brokenness. They're coming to you. You're proclaiming the name of Jesus. You're explaining the name of Jesus to them. They're in slavery and bondage in that moment. You have the keys to unlock them from those shackles. It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You have it. They don't. You're explaining it. You're handing them the key to say, unlock it. You don't have to stay in there. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. New life in Jesus Christ. He's explaining the meaning of it. Beware, therefore. Then there's a warning. This is where we get real clear. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. He said, make sure this isn't true of you. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Basically, beware, Thus God has presented in all his glory to you and you walk away pretending you didn't see it. That's the sermon. Now, we could spend a few weeks on this sermon alone just unpacking every theme and detail and prophecy that he mentioned here. I want to unpack three particulars that I think are important to us. And as I do so, there's two layers to what I'm doing. I'm trying to explain to you what I'm doing on a Sunday. Not just so you understand me, but if you're a Christian, you're going to hear a lot of sermons in your life. Every Sunday, Lord willing, you're going to hear a sermon, sermon until the Lord takes you home. Then you're probably going to hear a lot more sermons in heaven as well, okay? Now, here's the deal. I want you to be equipped to know what healthy preaching is and what unhealthy preaching is. That's part of this. At the same time, I want to make you a healthy proclaimer of God's word. So everything I walk through has two layers to it. First, notice this theme in, 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 Saul's, in Paul's sermon. Jesus was presented from the word of God out. Jesus was presented from the word of God out. He summarizes the scriptures. That whole first section, he walked through the scriptures. He wasn't, he, he didn't start from philosophy or the most modern way of thinking and secular ideology and then try to get to God from there. This is, a, this is a danger we have, and it's the new way that people try to explain God. They start from secular thinking and then try to get secular thinkers to see God on their turf. That's not how it works. Christian, you have a whole different worldview that you're operating out of. And, and what you need to do from this sermon is you need to say, okay, when I'm thinking of how I explain God to somebody, I'm not trying to step into their worldview over here. 
Remember this worldview, a secular thinker's worldview, rejects God. God is not at the center of this. Believes that we are purely evolutionary accidents. No purpose, no design, no reason to be here. And now you're going to step into that worldview and try and explain God? <laughs> this is what we do. Right? We try, to, we try to make peace and say, look, you know, I saw that TED Talk too. I, I saw that video too. That, that kind of hints to God. This is a much better play. Let's do what the Bible preachers did. I see what you're thinking over here, but that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> Step into my world with me for a second. Let, let me explain to you how I see it. And then you build your case for God and all that's going on in their life from the word of God up. I call this entering into someone's world with them. Here's how I do this. Here's how I do this. Someone comes to me or I'm evangelizing or I'm, I'm stepping into someone's brokenness because they permitted it. I'm going to step into their world with them. And so I come in, I say, you've just shared a lot of information with me about what's going on in your life. If I step into your world, I'm going to pretend to be you for a sec. This is what I say. I'm going to pretend to be you for a moment. In your worldview, if what you're saying is true, if you've gone through all this grief, you've lost your job, you're trying to think through how you respond to these moments, based on everything you believe to be true, there is no purpose in this. I don't see hope for you. But can I, let me, let me share with you my worldview. See, I actually think that's wrong. I think there's a whole other way to see this. If you step into my world with me for a second, see, I believe that God has orchestrated everything to point us to sort of something really deep here. And it's the word of God. See, the word of God says that everything you went through is not meaningless, that God has a plan. And actually, God's able to use suffering to bring us towards his purposes, to refine us for what he's doing in our life. So if you step into the word of God with me, let me show you from the word of God how this works. You see what I just did there? I'm not standing in their world pretending as if their world makes sense. It doesn't make sense. The secular worldview has no concept of sense or reality. Rather, I invite them into my world with me. I explain reality clearly from the word of God. This takes practice. It, it actually takes practice to be in people's lives and help them see God from the word of God up. And there's another word it takes, courage. But you know what we need more than anything in our modern secular society? Christians with just a glimmer of courage about them. To say this to somebody, will you just step into my world with me for a moment? Because this makes sense. Number two, Christ was presented as the centerpiece of it all. So number one was this. Jesus was presented from the word of God out. From the word of God out. Number two is this. Christ was presented as the centerpiece of it all. All of world history for Paul culminated in Jesus' death and resurrection. You go through that sermon, you can't help but say it all always pointed towards Jesus. What was God doing in the Old Testament? He was pointing people to Jesus. What was God doing in the Middle Ages? He was pointing people to Jesus. What was God doing in the Renaissance? He was getting people to Jesus. What was God doing in the Reformation? He was getting people. Everything pointed to Jesus. It was all pointing to Jesus from the beginning. There's a missiologist. Missiology is the study of missions and what God is doing uh, in the nations right now. Very famous missiologist named Leslie Newbegin. And he writes a lot on what it means to live in a pluralistic society. He was a missionary. Leslie Newbegin was a scholar who was a missionary to India for many years. And so you speak about a pluralistic society. Pluralistic societies are societies that accept many, many, many different religions, many, many, many different gods. 
in a, in a way, it's kind of postmodern. It's like any truth is true. Whatever you think truth is, is good for you. Whatever you think truth is, is good for you. There's no necessarily objective, fixed truth. That's a pluralistic society. Sound like the world we're living in today? Yes. He writes a lot into how to live missionally into a pluralistic society. I'm gonna quote Leslie Newbigin quite a bit for the rest of this message. Leslie says this, what's unique about the Bible is the story which it tells with its climax in the story of the incarnation, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of the Son of God. If the story is true, then it is unique and also universal in its implications for all of human history. It is, in fact, the true outline of world history. It is, in fact, the true outline of world history. In many cultures, stories are told about dying and rising gods, stories which are clearly rooted in the universal human experience of death and birth. But these stories in other religions make no claim to be actual history. They have no dates and places attached to them. The biblical story is unique. This is what we have to understand. The Bible is not just a set of values to be believed. To be believed. The Bible is an understanding of history rightly told that is true for all people everywhere. And when as Christians, we just categorize Christianity and the Bible as a set of values, and we pretend like it's not actually making a statement on world history of what history actually is about, culminating in the person of Jesus Christ, then we rob the Bible of what it actually is, and we pretend Christianity to be something it's actually not. As Christians, we need to present Jesus as the centerpiece of everything. Third, in this sermon, Christ was presented as exclusively necessary for the forgiveness of sin. He was exclusively necessary for the forgiveness of sin. Verses 38 and 39. Let me read to you those again. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. At Park, we like to say that every sermon is Christocentric. What do we mean by that? When I'm preaching on a Sunday morning, what I'm trying to do is wherever I am, if I'm preaching from a, an Old Testament prophet or I'm preaching from the book of Genesis or I'm preaching from the New Testament, every passage gets us to Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's a Christocentric sermon. It gets us to the meaning of the death and resurrection so that I can proclaim with clarity every single week that we are reminded that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood and that Jesus is the perfect, pure, sinless sacrifice that was made for the forgiveness of sin because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is no forgiveness without Jesus offering his blood as a substitute for us. I was watching a preacher recently. He was on Oprah. And Oprah was interviewing him on a, a quite a sensitive subject. <clears throat> and she, she said, you know, when you say that, when you say that this particular action is sinful, she goes, that makes people feel really bad. How, how, how can you say that to people in your church? And I watched this preacher just squirm in his seat and he responded this way. He said, you know, I try not to say those things. I, I try to really just encourage people and lift them up. This is one of the most famous preachers in America. I try to, on a Sunday, just encourage people. And even though I believe some of those things to be true, I don't really say them. That's not what Paul did. You're not going to find that baloney in the Bible. 
The, the, the Bible says that there is real sin, and it's not just sinners out there, but it's sinners in here. All have fallen short of the glory of God, myself included. And without the shedding of Jesus' blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And the consequences, the beware part of this, is eternal separation from our holy, perfect God. But if we believe in Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness of sin, there's reconciliation, there's joy, there's life eternal. Now, I want to I get to your life as you minister to people. Most of the evangelism we do as people is long-term relational evangelism. You're in people's lives. You're caring for people. You're loving people. And long-term relational evangelism is precious and sweet, and we must be in people's lives, and not every conversation we have with somebody needs to be, you know, every, always all the time. You can really burn somebody out that way. But also, I can tell you this. If you think of your own life, most people who say they're engaged in relational evangelism with somebody over the long haul, what that means is it's an excuse to never bring up Jesus Christ and the fact that that person you're caring for must make a decision of whether or not they're going to believe in Jesus or not at some point in their life. And so I want to encourage you with something. I believe that God gives us divine moments in the people's lives that he brings into our life. And what Christians need to do is wake up every day with hands open like this, Lord, Give me an opportunity today to be clear with the necessity of belief in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins with somebody today. I don't want to miss my moments you put in front of me because those moments don't always present themselves. Sometimes they're few and far between. Now the consequences. That was the content of the sermon. This is important for us. The consequences of what happened next are true anytime we step into the place of proclaiming God's word. Verses 42 to 52. As they went out, when they finished up preaching, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, so a week passes, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. I feel like that a little bit today. This is wonderful seeing how packed this room is today. Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, quote from the Old Testament, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews, in sight of the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy in the midst of persecution and with the Holy Spirit. Two things happen when you're clear with the word of God. You should expect this. You should always know it to be true. And if you're a Christian, you should be ready for both. 
When you share the word of God, there will be those that will rejoice greatly, receive it with gladness, and ask you to come back the next week and explain it in more depth. That's called discipleship. You share the love of Jesus. They believe in Jesus. You've met their brokenness. You show them how Christ heals them. They say, yes, I want it. You bring them to church with you, but then you don't leave them alone. You say, now I'm in your life. I've got work to do. You bring a book with you next time. You start walking them through life on life ministry, helping them grow into a disciple maker themselves. Sometimes that happens. That's some of your stories. I've been in that with you. It is the sweetest joy of my life when I get to be a part of that with you guys. Sometimes something else happens. Sometimes you get persecuted. Sometimes you bring up the name of Jesus with someone. You take a a risk, a step of courage. You bring it up, and they get real angry with you, and they don't want to talk to you. That happens. And that is okay I want look, look at me. I want to give you permission to know that that is okay. Sometimes I think this is what happens when we think about sharing the love of Christ with somebody. I think that we believe it's up to us to perfectly come up with the perfect way to share it in such a way that we never offend anybody. We're going to find just the right words and just the right. Nobody can do that. That is impossible. The gospel is offensive. It is an offensive claim of truth over history that proclaims that we are more sinful than we could ever believe, and unless we believe in Jesus Christ, we will be separated from him for all eternity. That is offensive to people. That doesn't mean that we use it as a battering ram, but it does mean that when we proclaim truth, we do it with gentleness, with love, with a deep and sincere love for people, but with clarity. Clarity is a part of love. And sometimes you share the love with somebody And they say, I don't want anything to do with it. And what does Paul do? He wipes the dust off his feet and he goes the next time and he celebrates with joy. There is a time to say, I've done all that I can. That doesn't mean I leave completely, but it means that this door has been closed as far as I can see. Church, in our place we're living, this pluralistic society we're living in, we need to be prepared for both of those. And we cannot be afraid when the second of those happens. It is okay In fact, what we find in this passage is that they then go out and celebrate all the more. Leslie Newbegin again says this. He says, when Christians affirm, as they do, that Jesus is the way, the true and living way by whom we come to the Father, they are not claiming to know everything. Notice this. We're not claiming arrogance here. We're not claiming to know everything. They are claiming to be on the way. And inviting others to join them as they press forward towards the fullness of the truth, toward the day when we shall know as we have been known. Let me make sure we leave today with this. The Christian should be the most humble person in society. We're not claiming that we know everything, but we are claiming we know one thing. We know that Jesus went to the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and our experience and the knowledge of God proves in our hearts the depth that it is true. And if we have found the most precious treasure in the world, then the deepest longing every Christian should have is that everyone they know around them comes to share in that treasure with them. And I want to submit to you something today. If you have no desire in your heart for anyone else around you to share in the treasure of the love of Christ, If there's just nothing in you that beats to say, it's so good, I've got to share this with somebody. If there's nothing in you, I don't think you understand the treasure yet because it is that good. It changes you from the inside out. 
And what I want to do in this place is, is lift up a generation of people that can't help but sing their hearts out to Jesus and say, someone around me has to know this. I started this sermon by bringing us to the Old Testament passage that said, there's a famine in the land for the word of God. And then what happens? Violence, murder, strife. If you want to see your city change for Jesus, it's not that you're going to develop another program. It's not that the politicians are going to get their act together. It's that Christians are going to start living this way. It's that Christians are going to start taking steps of bold courage, faith-filled love of other people, humble steps of dependence on God, taking the opportunities when they come to present the gospel in clarity that Jesus is the one who changes hearts. Jesus is the one who changes cities. Jesus is the one who changes families. Jesus is the one who heals the things that no one thought could be healed. Him alone. You're not going to do it. No program is going to do it. The brokenness around you is healed by one person, by one name, as we sang this morning. That's the name of Jesus. I invite you to be a proclaimer of that message. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we are floored at times by the boldness of the apostles and the lack of boldness and courage in us as modern-day Christians. Jesus, I pray in the name of Jesus for a Holy Spirit-filled, just, just breaking forth and unleashing a proclamation that Jesus is as good as we sing about on a Sunday morning. God, I pray that we would be those kind of people that are so salty and compelling in our faith that someone has to look in on us and say there's something different about us. Please, Jesus, raise that up in us. We're tired of seeing Chicago making international news for its violence and its strife and its bloodshed, and we know why. There's no knowledge of God in the land. Lord, we pray for healing in the land. Lord, we pray for revival in the land. And we pray that it would burst forth from the church and that Jesus would get all the glory and all the credit, that you'd make less of us, and that you'd strip all of our self-pleasing, self-gratifying, egocentric brokenness out of the equation, and just let Jesus be seen in all of his beauty. He is worthy of it all. Receive all the glory, we say, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.